welcome to Long Hill Chapel Online. Thanks for checking out our podcast where you can listen to our latest sermons filled with teaching, encouragement, and hope from God's Word. So whether you're in the car, on the couch, or just poured some coffee, let's dive into today's message. Well, hello, Long Hill Chapel. We're so glad you've joined us online today. And today we're going to kick off a brand new series called A New Way to Be. And it's based around this simple but very profound idea that when Jesus came, and we just celebrated that a few weeks ago at Easter, Jesus didn't come merely to offer an improvement or a tweak or some additions to the way that we live and the way things were. He came to show and he came to model a completely different way to be. Now, on my way up to the church here in Chatham, I drive uh, through some neighborhoods, and there's a building project that's going on on one of the streets. And it's something maybe you've seen this happen before if you live anywhere around New Jersey, uh, where they take an entire house down except for one wall. So they rip the whole thing down. It's like a demolition project, except the foundation is still there, and there's one wall that's still standing. And then they build basically a completely brand new house next to that wall. And the reason that they do that is it's a different set of codes and a different set of regulations that govern renovation projects rather than new building and new construction. And you'd look at that and say, no, that's, that's a new house, just like I would. But for some reason, if you leave one wall standing and you leave the foundation uh, where it is and you build on top of that, it counts as a renovation rather than a brand new building, even though everything about it is brand new and it's different. That's kind of what this looks like here that we're talking about, that Jesus came to do. He didn't just come to change the paint color. He didn't just come to, you know, change the doors and the windows or add a few new fixtures or move things around a little bit. He came to offer us something that's brand new, but it's built on the foundation of what had come before. It's built on the foundation of the scriptures in the Old Testament way, but it's brand new and it was a different way. When we open up the scene that we're going to look at today, Jesus had just begun his public ministry, and it's in the Gospel of Matthew. And so, you know, the scene about where he came as a baby in a manger, he's grown up, and now he's about to begin his public earthly ministry, and he begins to draw attention to himself. He starts speaking publicly. He starts saying some curious and telling things. He starts performing miracles and healing the sick, and there's this buzz that begins to build around him because his audience was a group of Jewish people who had heard the legends and the stories, and they knew some of the Old Testament prophecies, and they were beginning to connect the dots and put two and two together. And in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, kind of where everything kicks off, Jesus says this very key phrase, which would have immediately gotten the attention of his ancient audience. It sounds kind of commonplace to us, but it was coded. It was loaded with all sorts of meaning and significance. And he said this in, in Matthew 4, 17, he said, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near." When we hear that, that sounds a little bit like a late-night televangelist, or maybe you pass somebody on the street corner in New York City or another city where there was someone yelling through a megaphone to repent because the kingdom of God was on its way, and it was going to be, uh, you were going to get your comeuppance if you didn't. But for the Jewish audience, this would have gotten their attention immediately because it talked about this incredible concept which anchored so much of their faith and understanding, the concept 
of the kingdom of God. There was this belief that at some point, God would come back and he'd take back the reins of history, which had been slackened with the reign and the invasion and the overthrow of pagan nations in the life of the Jewish people. And it's, things had gotten bad. And so the kingdom of God drawing near would look like the restoration of Israel, the destruction of her enemies, and the fulfillment of so many of the prophecies that had been spoken by the Old Testament prophets of a ruler who would emerge who was called Messiah. Because here what was, here's what was true about the kingdom of heaven for Jewish people. They didn't understand it, maybe like you and I are tempted to understand it, as this future place where there were clouds and angels and harps and it was up in the sky, but they literally understood it as a restoration of this world. It was part political, part social, part justice, part spiritual, and even part physical. You know, one of the phrases we hear very often around the church and around Christianity, especially when things get bad, especially when we find ourselves in a time like maybe we all feel like in our world, is people say something like, you know, this world is not our home. And, you know, ultimately our destination is to be reunited in the presence of Jesus if you're a Jesus follower. But the Jewish people would not have understood that. Because they understood the kingdom of God as a restoration of a making right of all that was wrong, but here in this place that was their home. But there's a key understanding that the kingdom that was ruling and reigning, it wasn't a tweak of an existing one. It wasn't God getting behind one of the existing factions that was vying for attention and power. Then as happens now, it was a completely different and new kingdom. And so they were beginning to connect the dots to Jesus. But as we'll discover, as we go through the series together, Jesus turns their expectations and he turns ours upside down. He says this key word, repent. You know, we usually see repent as turn away from your sin and your wrongdoing, and that is what it means. But the word repent in the original language literally meant turn in a new direction for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Turn in a different way than you've gone, than you thought things would go, go, and move in a different direction. And so for the next couple months here at Long Hill, we are going to look at the picture that Jesus paints of this kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And it's a passage known as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, the gospel, and all the way through Matthew chapter 7. Why are we doing this? And why are we doing this after Easter? I don't know if you've been to Long Hill or you've, you've seen some of the other folks, or maybe you're new here. There's a lot of folks who have been new to this church in the past year or two. And there's some of us who've been around a little longer and some of us who've been around for a very long time. But we come at this all from different points on the map, different levels of faith experience and life journey and spiritual experience. And one of the things that I think is so key for us is that we understand clearly exactly what Jesus has called us to. And so what Jesus says in these two chapters, Matthew, or three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is absolutely foundational to what we and what Christians and what his people are to be about. I would even argue that these chapters are at least as important as the Ten Commandments. And they are something that's less about do's and don'ts and more about how we live in every single circumstance. It's a new way to be. So let's shift back to the story. 
Have you ever been to a restaurant that everyone has talked about? It's brand new. It's just opening and word is spreading around about how great it is. I've been to a few of those in my town and in the area. And when you go, the lines are out the door. It's impossible to get a reservation. You end up on a waiting list because so many people are there because the word is spread about it. There's a crowd at the door. Expectations in a place like that are incredibly high. And such is the case with where we find the curtain going up on Jesus' public ministry. Jesus begins to see this crowd take shape. And so he heads out to a mountain. And we begin in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So imagine this scene. Everybody is gathered. He's gone out to a place that can accommodate the crowd and they can see him and they can hear him out to a mountainside. And so he climbs up above them a little bit. He takes a seat and everybody knows something's about to happen. And so they quiet down and Jesus begins. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I don't know if you've ever been in a crowd where someone says something and nobody's sure how to respond. And a couple people just begin to clap and it's awkward and it's kind of this, this empty space. It's a slow clap. What a weird way for Jesus to kick things off. You know, if you're a Christian, you may know this passage as something called the Beatitudes. Blessed are those. But for his audience who had all these expectations of who Jesus was going to be and how he was going to fulfill the prophecies and the histories and the legends and the expectations, this was an incredibly bizarre and awkward way to kick things off. Blessed. You know, you and I, we think we're blessed when we're happy. If you're on social media, occasionally you see a hashtag, and that's when it's this topic that unites all these different stories together, hashtag blessed. And it usually shows up when somebody has received something, they've gotten a promotion, they've come into money, they've had a great experience, or they're on this amazing vacation. And so they decide and they discover that they're blessed. And there are the things around us in the world that we've decided, that even the world around us has told us that every advertisement sells us that if we have them, if we achieve them, and if we attain them, then we'll be happy. You know, there's even a Christian version of this. You know, when we're successful or we're in a good season of life or we, we come into financial prosperity, it's easy for us to say that we're blessed. Hashtag praise God. But the word here in the passage, in its original language, it literally means that. It means happy. You could say happy are the poor in spirit or happy are those who mourn. But nothing on this list seems very happy at all. But before we get to that, 
this idea of what makes us happy, what makes us blessed, gets to the very bottom and the core of our being, of our lives as humans and as people. Because we're always asking and answering a question, how can I be happy? You know, it's something we all want. It's something a few of us may feel today, but honestly, and let's be real honest about this, a lot of us don't. Because happiness, so often for us, it's something or someone out there in front of us, or it's something that was a season or an experience or a relationship or something we had that was back behind us. Some of us have this clear picture in our mind. If we just achieve this or attain this or get this or get back to this, it'll make us happy. We're trying to figure out the path of how to do that. If I had that, if I made that much, if I lived there or if I worked there, if I had him or I had her, if I could get back to that place or back to that time, if our country could get back to that place or back to that time, or if we could get past this issue, if that hadn't happened or if that would happen and on and on it goes. Now, a couple of you are listening to me and you're saying, you know, I don't do that. I'm content. I'm happy. But you know what? We all do this. We all scroll on our phones. Some of us, we go on TV and we, we watch shows that tell us about the life or the house or the job or the career or the experience that we wish that we had. You know, in 2018, my wife Grace and I and our son Christopher, we moved into a new house. And by new, I mean a new old house that needed a lot of work. And so everything around us needed to be updated and renovated. And it was something we had decided together and we'd signed off on. But you know, one of the things I did a lot in that kind of depressing place where nothing was the way I thought it should be is I'd turn on the TV and I'd turn on HGTV and I would binge watch Fixer Upper. I love Fixer Upper. It's that show with Chip and Joanna Gaines where they go into a difficult house, the worst house on the block, and they utterly transform it. And I loved watching that show. And certainly it gave me a lot of ideas about what I could do. But in some ways, it was easier for me to escape to that than it was to actually face down the house that I lived in. And so we are all trying to answer that simple question, how can I be happy? You know, one of the things I did as I was preparing for this message is I went into Google, the search engine, and I typed in the words, how can I be H? And it auto-completes. There's this thing that happens where it auto-completes the likely topics that you're searching for. And it comes up with those topics based on what other people have searched for when they type the same thing you were. And all of the ones in that list, with like one exception, we're about how can I be happy? How can I be happy? How can I be happy with myself? How can I be happier? How can I get back to being happy? All of them had to do with that. And so this is this common thing that we experience in the world. How can I do that? How can I search for that thing? Now, you're listening to church online and you're watching, and some of you are Christians, and you know that the answer to this question is supposed to be Jesus. And you're like, Michael, Jesus is what makes you, what makes me happy. And you know that's supposed to be the right answer of what I'm supposed to say, and we're going to get there. But let me be transparent and do it with yourself too. There have been times in our lives where we thought if we just went to church or we just had more faith, or we just embraced religion, it was going to make us happy. And maybe it did for a little bit, but then something happened or things changed in our lives or the circumstances changed. Sometimes it does it, sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't, it becomes really confusing. 
So today, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus, but it's a little more complex than just trying to jam the word Jesus into the answer box of how can I be happy? How can I feel blessed? Now, we all try to make a lot of things work with this, to make them fit. But let's draw the lens back to the original audience who had gathered on this mountain to hear and to experience whatever Jesus was going to say. Like, why else would you do that? Why would you go out of town, go out of your way, take time out of your schedule to go out to a mountainside and listen to somebody say some things? Here's the simple reason, because they thought Jesus was going to say some things or maybe do some things that would make them happy. You know, he would come and he would overthrow the Roman Empire and he'd bring back the good old days or he'd speak out against the injustice that everybody experienced and felt and the taxation and the oppression that they experienced as an occupied people. That he'd speak to those legends that everybody had said about him and he'd begin to bring things back to the way they thought it should be, that he would make them happy. And you and I, we go onto our own mountaintops waiting to hear those same words. We go on all sorts of strange journeys ourselves. If we think we're going to find something, we're going to find someone who makes us happy. Or if you want to use the Christian word, blessed. They had a list of things, and we have a list of things too. And in the moment, when we wait for it to come, I would imagine that this early crowd, as Jesus began to speak, it seemed kind of underwhelming. It seemed kind of disappointing. They expected more from this moment. But what I want to do is I want to go through this list of things that Jesus says, you are happy if you experience this. You are happy if you do this. You're happy or you're blessed if you are this. But what's even more important, and that's why I hope you'll stick with us for the next several weeks as we go through the entire Sermon on the Mount, is that we connect this to everything else that comes after it, because it's all connected. So remember, when you hear the word blessed is or blessed are in this passage, it literally means happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. Now, most of us, we would expect to have richness in our spirits, in ourselves, and that would be the thing that makes us happy. But Jesus says it's actually when we feel a sense of poverty in our spirit. And what that means is we're not embracing dependence on ourselves. We're not embracing dependence on our understanding. We have placed our dependence on God for what we need. Maybe not what we think we want, but what we need. And when we do that, we discover and we really experience that reality that makes us feel like we don't have the power to figure it all out. But it's asking God, give me what I need and I trust that you'll give it to me and I know that within myself, I don't have that. I'm not God. I can't figure it out, but I depend on you and I trust you. Jesus says, people who do that are happy people. People who aren't trying to control their circumstances, trying to make it all happen, trying to make it all make sense, but people who trust in God, who are poor in spirit, are happy. Happy are those, or blessed are those who mourn. Happy are those who mourn. That's like the opposite of what you want and what I want. But I've discovered something about mourning. When we truly are mourning, it shows that we were relationally connected to others. 
You know, mourning in life, it's a measure of relational meaning. It is something that is inevitable in any life that is marked by richness of relationships and love. It's a point of measure of a life of significance. You know, I've had the opportunity as a pastor and as a ministry leader to be at a lot of funerals. And no one mourns someone who had no impact, who was not loved and who didn't love. You know, that's tragic in its own way. I pray that when my time comes, I'm mourned by the right people. Those who I had the chance to love, that I did it when I had the chance. You know, and a lot of this is decisions we make. It's small decisions we make. It's an accumulation of small things that we decide and we prioritize in the moment. You know, a couple nights ago, my son Christopher, who's seven years old, you know, my wife Grace and I were out at our dining room table, both clicking away at our computers and doing important work stuff at 10 p.m. at night. He was in his room falling asleep and he called for me and he said, Daddy, I want you to come snuggle with me. And in that moment, I was just faced with the decision because I had this important thing that I was doing. But for some reason, I had the presence of mind, and I don't always do this, but I had the presence of mind to push my computer back and to go into his room and just to lay down with him. And we talked for a while, and it was just, it was a small thing, but it was a significant moment where we shared love together. Yeah, I'm so thankful for those times. I won't have them forever. He won't have them forever. And when those things move on, when the seasons change or when circumstances change or when he grows up or someday, unless Jesus comes first, I pass from this earth, he will mourn that. I pray. I hope. Blessed are those who mourn. It's the ones who have given and risk of themselves. Because every relationship has it has a beginning and it has an end point. It has a seasonal nature to it. And, you know, I was reading this story uh, just a few days ago in one of the papers, and it was the story of foster parents. And if you're a foster parent, oh my goodness, my hat is off to you because of the work that you do investing in children who are not even your own, but giving of your hearts, opening your home, doing all these incredibly sacrificial things. But the story was a story of uh, these parents who had, had invested in this child for a couple of years and through a set of circumstances, the child was going to be given back uh, to the birth parents. And they were mourning it. But they were mourning it because of the love that was given, because it mattered, because there was importance there. We don't get to receive the value of any relationship unless we're willing to open ourselves up to the cost we might incur when that season comes to an end. Now, those of you who are married and some of you who are watching and listening, you may have already experienced this. You will mourn the loss of the other someday, and it will be sad but it also is connected to a life of love and happiness and joy and significance. It's hard to think about, but it's the price tag of having lived and loved well. So blessed are those who open their hearts to take risks and give themselves to others. There's a price tag, but there's also incredible riches you don't get any other way. And throughout this entire Sermon on the Mount, you'll find that that's a theme that recurs over and over again. Blessed are the meek. When you don't assert yourself, but you take the second place to others. And this isn't being a doormat or getting run over, but it's choosing to not use your power to prop yourself up. Instead, to elevate others. This is what Jesus did. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. 
for righteousness. This is when you crave the good, the right, God above all else, even when it costs you. And it always costs. Blessed are the merciful, those who continually realize the grace and generosity they've been given, and they give it in the same way to other people. Blessed are the pure in heart, those who move in a singular direction. The meaning and purpose of their life and motivation is clearly in the direction of God. It's not clouded by other things. It's pure. It's singular. Blessed are the peacemakers, those who pay a price to make things right and to resolve conflict. If you've ever been a peacemaker, you know it's an active and costly role. It's different than keeping the peace. Making peace requires you to get involved. Occasionally, it means that you get hurt and you lose, but you always risk and you always are investing of yourself. Do you sense a theme that's beginning to develop here? Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of what's right, who pay a price for living in the way of Jesus. Now, when we look at this list initially, it's not very satisfying. There's nobody who reads this list and says, yay, these are great. I can't wait to go live this way. But I think we all subtly understand the significance here, the meaning, the value, the depth of living that happens if we live in the way of Jesus. Because the biggest assault that Jesus presents us It's not immediately to our lifestyle, but it's to our way of thinking. It's to our way of seeing the world. It's to our way of seeing ourselves, seeing our resources, seeing the life we've been given, seeing other people. And when that mindset shift happens, our lifestyle begins to change. He's asking us, just like he asked those early people on the mountain who had all these expectations of him, he's asking them to turn their understanding and their expectations completely upside down. But how does this make us happy? How does doing all these things make us happy? How does it make us blessed? I think the key is found here. Happiness isn't a who and not a what. Happiness is a who and it's not a what. You know, you know this kind of instinctively. There was a day when you got a new car or you got a new phone or you lived in a new house and that first season made you so happy because it was new. And now it's older, and you're a little less happy. And then a new one comes out. This happens with smartphones all the time or cars. There's like the new model year that has the new things that yours doesn't. And suddenly yours, not only does it not make you happy, it makes you unhappy because you want the new one. We know this system of trying to buy things and get things and accumulate things and construct our lives around things actually doesn't work, but we keep doing it. And that's why we don't just need a tweak. We need something completely different. We need something brand new. We need a new way to be. All of these blessed are, happy are things involve us giving ourselves away, investing ourselves, risking ourselves, paying a price in one of two directions, God, other people, and sometimes both. It's two different who's. It's not a what, but it's who. We give ourselves, but here's the thing, when we do that, when we make that investment, we actually receive something back that's far better. What's the reward? Says it in the first verse, for theirs 
is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the way of God, the way of Jesus, this upside down way of living and existing. And when we make that exchange, when we take that risk, we get something back that's far greater than we could ever imagine, and it's not matched by anything else. You know, as we go through these next weeks, if you approach this passage and the ones that follow from the standpoint of learning some new things or self-improvement or getting or adding to or being more spiritual or being more knowledgeable or having a greater understanding of how things are, you'll probably be a little bit disappointed. But if you lean in and you make the investment and you pay the price and you push your own life into the center of the table and say, here, God, is who I am. I offer it to you in service of this new way to be, this new kingdom, this new way of living, knowing that the things I will do will feel like I'm losing, but instead I have so much to gain. It'll change your life. It'll change our church. And it might even just change a little piece of our world. So I hope you'll stick with us and I hope you'll tune in again next week. As we close, would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Jesus, we come and we hear these words and they're words that some of us have heard before. But honestly, they're words that seem difficult. They seem a little bit underwhelming, just like to the early audience. They seem disappointing. They they call us to something. And I pray that as we hear them once again, as we're challenged by the words of the Sermon on the Mount this week and in the weeks to follow, you, by the power of your Spirit, would be at work in our hearts. You'd give us just a glimpse of the richness that we can have if we'll live this kind of life, if we'll invest ourselves in following you and in serving others like you did, that we would have the courage to take that risk. You'd show us how. You'd lead us along the path, but then we would see a change in our lives, in our relationships, in our church, and even in our world, something that would turn all of those things, just like you did when you came the first time, upside down. We thank you that your word has power, that it always speaks to us. It always speaks to where we find ourselves. Now, I pray by the power of your spirit, you'd give us the strength to continue to follow after you, to do it together, but to bring glory to you, realizing that when we follow in your way, that the riches that we receive as citizens and ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, are rich beyond compare. And so we pray for these next weeks, for the journey we all will take, that you'll be at work in our hearts, you'll be at work in our church, and you'll be at work in our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Have a good week, and we'll see you very soon. Thanks for listening today. To connect with us further, you can visit our website at lhcnj.net. We're on social media at LHCNJ, and we'll be back next week with another sermon. Until then, have a great week and God bless. Thank you.